Hello, I'm David Lee and welcome to Data Capital, the Scotsman's six-part podcast series examining the world of data and artificial intelligence, how they affect many different areas of our lives and Edinburgh's ambition to become the data capital of Europe. Last time, we discussed how data and artificial intelligence is helping transform the oil and gas industry. And today, we're talking robots and robotics, and how data and AI is powering an exciting new venture in Edinburgh, which could have a huge impact on all our lives. Today, we're talking about the human face of data and bravery in the face of data, artificial intelligence, and ever-changing technology. Often when we talk about data and artificial intelligence, we're fixated on numbers and the idea of big data sets on Big Brother on analysis and insights, and we forget about the people. Firas Kanesa, chair of DMA Scotland, wants to put people and human values back at the centre of the conversation. And I'm joined by Firas today and also by Olivia Gamblin, CEO of Ethical Intelligence, which helps companies navigate those ethical challenges around artificial intelligence. Like Firaz, Olivia believes there is strength in human values that when applied to data and AI and technology can help us create solutions that people want and can trust. Olivia, earlier in this podcast series, Professor Shannon Valor, uh, Director of the Centre for Technomoral Future in Edinburgh, described data and artificial intelligence as human all the way down. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I'm actually a huge fan of Shannon Valor's work as well. So I'll fangirl a little bit there. I think she's done some amazing work in terms of virtue ethics and bringing that into technology. She's absolutely correct. It's people creating these systems. It's not machines creating machines. And the values and the decisions we're putting into these systems are, at the end of the day, still human values and human decisions. So what is it that scares people, do you think, about about data and AI? I think a lot of it from the general public comes from a lack of understanding. It seems like literally an entire black box rather than just a black box system. But the whole thing, not really understanding what data, what of my personal data is being processed, what's being done with it. I didn't even know that my personal data is processed, for example. So there's a lot of miscommunication and lack of understanding and education that leads to fear naturally. We fear what we don't understand. So from a general public standpoint, it's just that lack of understanding that's causing a lot of the fear from the general public, I'm talking, not the, the actual practitioners. And Firaz, just in terms of that trust idea, what's, what's your perspective on why people are, are nervous and, and have got real issues around trusting data and AI? Brands have not, you know, historically played fair at points, you know, there, there are companies that have taken our data for a number of years, done all kinds of funky stuff with it, made billions on top of doing that kind of stuff. And they never actually told us they're going to be using our data to do, to do stuff like that. Well, maybe it is in the legal print, but uh, there wasn't, a, a, you know, a, an effort to educate, back to Olivia's point, uh, the customer around what is happening with the data, how is it going to be used, and how would it actually help to, to serve them. So distrust is natural and i think that brands need to step up the game uh, to be able to, to 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 fill that gap again what about that point feeders you've talked in the past about socks i think in they're having a conversation then they go to their laptop or their phone and 
all of a sudden something that they've been talking about pops up in the corner. What about those kind of very sort of visceral fears that people have? Yeah, I mean, I, those fears are, are very tangible, I think. And, and these, these are kind of twofold. First of, of all, it's quite terrifying when they get it right. Uh, you know, if, if I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm, I'm discussing something with a friend and then all of a sudden I get an advert for it, pretty terrifying. Then the other one is actually, which is really disillusioning, which is how many times they get it wrong. I mean, I get, you know, a lot of women's stuff promoted to me. I don't know why. <laughs> but they seem to think that, that I like uh, women's wear. So, so I get hounded for all types of things, uh, socks being, being a key one. But socks, I, 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 approve, I approve of them stalking me for socks. But this kind of stalking behavior is, is also alarming. So whether you get it right, it's alarming. And whether you get it wrong, it's alarming. There needs to be uh, something there in the middle where we're able to, uh, to, to, to serve the customer exactly what they need. There's no harm in that. And Olivia, what's your view on that? What's your view on this very, very targeted marketing that, as Firas says, sometimes is worryingly accurate and sometimes is worryingly way off the mark? Well, one of the things that I've seen over just the past few months that's been promising, actually, is the fact that we're going from the ability to consent to opt in or out and instead going, I prefer to have targeted ads versus I prefer not to have targeted ads. I think that is a step really in the right direction. It puts it back into the consumer's control. For example, I don't like targeted ads, but I know that's just a personal opinion of my own. Whereas I have friends and family who love targeted ads because they're saying, oh, I've been looking for this or I get great sales off of those targeted ads. So I think that is actually a very promising step that we've made towards the consumer, putting the power back into the consumer's control of saying, no, I don't want this versus, yeah, I think this is something beneficial to me. We'll come back to these themes later, but just to return to the idea of data and and people and people being right at the heart of it, what do you mean when you talk about the importance of people in data fear as, and why do we sometimes forget the role that people play? Why is it so important that people are at the heart of this conversation? So Olivia touched on it beautifully, I think, at the, at the beginning. But, um, you know, as part of the work that we do in, uh, for DMA Scotland, uh, we launched a campaign called the Value of Data Campaign, which, uh, you know, is documented through the Scotsman Conference and various articles and stuff like that. And we, we were searching for what is the value of data? Because uh, fundamentally, data was not on, on the balance sheet. You know, it's not, it's not valued as an asset. If you try to value it, it's, it's really tricky to actually get the valuation right. And then we started moving a little bit more. And this is where we started working much more closely with Olivia is, okay, so we can't look at value without looking at values. So how, how, do the value, how does the values thing play into value? Because we have to have a combination of both, really. So the, the people thing is actually at the heart of that. Uh, you know, I get asked many times, so have you found the answer to what, what is the value of data? Where's the value of data? I'm like, I knew it all the way from the start. It's not like I'm, I have like a spoiler alert, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that if I tell you where the value is, uh, that the whole campaign is, is futile. Actually, the value of data is people. If I gave two exact data sets to two different teams, they would have a wide degree of differences in terms of you know, the, the insights that are going to derive from that data and what they're going to do with it and how they're going to be able to act on it. Completely different. So the focus is the, the people, not, not the data. And when you come into the ethics space, which we'll, I'm sure we'll delve into a little bit more, 
then even more, uh, we realize that, that the onus goes back to people, is if technology is moving at such a rapid pace and regulation is not able to keep up with technology, then we have to default back to what do we think should happen? And this is why ethics has, has become popular now and everybody's talking about ethics, which is, which is great, you know, but, uh, it's, uh, but it goes back to people. What's DMA in Scotland doing, Firaz, in terms of that kind of talking about people in terms of talent coming into the industry? and the kind of, you know, diverse and inclusive groups that we need, you know, can you tell us a bit about that? I could tell you a lot about that. So uh, essentially, uh, you know, the, the, whole, the whole reason why uh, the value of data campaign was created is so that we could bring more visibility, if you want, around data to the exec, uh, executive of, of large corporations. So they appreciate why they should actually invest in this asset, because it's only until that happens that we could create real pipelines, if you want, for talent coming into the industry. But that's not uh, alone the, the only driver for talent coming into the industry. I mean, we're part of an extremely collaborative scene here in uh, Scotland around everything to do with, with data. And that also helps, again, feed that funnel. But to go back to your point about inclusivity is we have to create inclusive an inclusive workforce if i am a if i'm a company in london maybe i don't have to work as hard to create an inclusive workforce but if i'm a company in edinburgh i have to be very active in my recruitment to be able to create an inclusive workforce otherwise uh, you know i'm i'm, I'm not going to create a company that reflects my customer and if you're not able to do that then uh, there's no way you could deliver to, to, to your customers' expectations. Olivia, do you think it's going to be more of a challenge for recruitment in places like Edinburgh when so many people in this field can work remotely now? Or is that, is that a help or a hindrance in that you don't necessarily need people to be physically, physically where you are? It is helpful because all of a sudden we're going from being restricted to a physical location to location restricted by Wi-Fi access. So in one way, it makes it a lot easier to access that, that needed diversity for your workforce. One thing to keep in mind there, though, is the workforce is very new to this remote-based style of work. So that transition isn't something that we're just magically snapping our fingers with and all of a sudden we've got a more diverse workforce. It's this slow process of, okay, now we have the ability to do this so we can consciously make those steps in that direction. And I think there, it's important to stress, though, that just because you make the numbers on a spreadsheet that you have a diverse workforce doesn't mean you're actually listening to those voices. So I think there needs to be a focus as well. It's not just the numbers and the percentages. It's also who is actually having input and what is the priority of that, that input and the impact that they have. And how do you think we can draw more people in, Olivia? Because we, we hear a lot of chat around data, AI, tech, fintech, and Scotland is very strong in all these spaces at the moment. Those people who are maybe interested but don't know very much, they don't feel that they're kind of part of this bubble. How do we draw in those diverse talents who aren't kind of in that tech bubble at the moment? How do we attract them? What stories do we tell to them to bring them in? Well, you're speaking to a philosopher who normally shouldn't be in the tech bubble in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I often get the comment. I think I started a panel the other day with, I'm a trained philosopher. And one of the other panelists goes, that's brave to say to a room of programmers. 
It's like, yeah, that's true. So it's a lot of changing the narrative in terms of you don't have to have a coding background in order to participate in the important work being done in this field. Um, actually, a lot of the people coming from humanities backgrounds have the skill sets that are missing currently in, in the current field. We have these skills gaps in terms of the different thought processes that are taught in philosophy, that are taught in uh, a lot of those soft sciences that normally aren't that easily recognizable of this is the connection into data or this is the connection into AI. So broadening just that conversation of you don't have to code to be able to participate. For example, I don't code myself, yet I am very, very active in this bubble because from a theoretical standpoint, I understand the technology. I can talk for days about the different applications, but I can't code them. And at the end of the day, I don't need to code them. Actually, it's better that I don't because for me, my job is to be able to take that step back and look from a high level abstract point of view to comment on those details. If I'm stuck down in the details, I'm gonna miss that bigger picture. So by broadening the conversation and saying, okay, those details really matter, but also this wider point of view, this, this overall pictures of people that can come in and aren't necessarily caught down in the details can provide, that combination and that dual perspective is wildly useful. It's, it's not even useful. It's, it's essential to being able to develop further in both innovation, but also ethically and ethical innovation. Coming back to Shannon Valor again, we're all getting a bit kind of fangirl, fanboy here, I know. But Shannon talks mm. about bringing together sort of ethicists with the techies, if you like, building a relationship that maybe has drifted apart. And how well are we doing at actually bringing these different disciplines together on a practical level? How good are we, are we getting at bringing people back together in workplaces as well and bringing those sort of different voices into the conversation that you talked about? Well. It's a long process. We're getting there. It's getting better. I like to always sound hopeful. It is getting better. I think from both ends, there's a sense of pride that we have to get over, though. Speaking from, from philosophy, from a philosopher standpoint coming in, we like to think that we're all cerebral and we have all of these grand ideas and it's, it's very hard to communicate with people outside of our field and we're too into the knowledge to be able to communicate into details and into code. It doesn't, it doesn't work with our brains sometimes. And then on the flip side, with programmers to philosophers, you have the programmers looking at philosophers going, what are you talking about right now? Why are you on about this responsibility thing? It doesn't matter when I'm coding. And there's also this, this kind of stipulation that ethics isn't a, a skill set. So it's, it's this matter of pride from both, from both ends. I'm, I'm not putting either side down. I know we're both at fault, but of course, when, you're, when you are studying your own profession, you think, okay, I'm very proud of this and I, and I think this is a great profession. But if you're told, okay, you're missing a skills gap or you're missing a knowledge gap, you become defensive. So we're slowly getting over that to recognize both sides need each other. It's not just philosophers coming and knowing everything or programmers coming in and knowing everything. It's that dual effort from both ends and the need for communication. The nice thing, again, I always like ending or commenting in terms of a hopeful perspective, the jargon's being broken down from both ends. So I've noticed that I'm able to use a lot more philosophical jargon. For example, I can say virtue ethics now, and people will tend to know what I'm talking about. As well as on the flip side, a programmer can say unsupervised learning, and philosophers will start to understand, okay, I know what you're talking about. That breakdown of jargon is 
this positive step forward that we're looking at that allows us to start to have that communication to start to understand, okay, the other side's pretty cool. They know what they're talking about and vice versa. And maybe we should, we should have a conversation on equal footing. Okay. And Firas, you've talked a bit about this. You've said people sometimes see you and say, oh God, here comes the data guy, you know? It's about trying to break down those stereotypes. What do you, what do you say back to them when they call you the data guy? Well, I mean, uh, Olivia, Olivia would uh, recall, uh, you know, we do something as part of uh, the DMA, which is called Creative Data Academy. Basically, a bunch, of, a bunch of people coming out of universities who want to do data and marketing, they come to see, okay, so what do these people actually do? And every time, and, you know, Olivia and I have talked about this, is they, they're almost embarrassed to come from a different background. They almost hide the fact that they studied political science or they studied psychology. And I have to go, actually, it's the opposite way. You should be proud of that. You're bringing so much more to what we do by you doing that. But we're kind of forced. And I guess there's an education thing. I mean, whether it's in universities or in schools is, you know, you have to kind of fit the mold. You have to fit the box. And employers perpetuate that as well. I mean, when I came into financial services, it's like, you have to have 10 plus years in financial services. And it's like, okay, wow. Uh, and if I don't, is that like a major problem? Yeah, yeah, we, we won't recruit you. It's like, but why? What if I came from the retail space and I could contribute massively to financial services? And I totally get that there are certain professions that need a certain number of years, but it's important to be open about the type of people, the experience that they have, you know, the, their ethnicity. We run something in the DMA, which is uh, uh, around neurodiversity and creating a neurodiverse workforce. So all of these things have to really come into play so that we could actually see, or, you know, it's very easy in a corporate environment to tick the uh, diversity and inclusion tick box. But to actually, like Olivia was saying, put it into play, it's massively powerful, but it needs a real shift in mindset that this is, this would bring us a lot of value as an organization. It's not a tick box exercise. Okay. And Olivia, how well are those leaders doing? How well are leaders doing at embracing diversity, but also embracing data and AI at all levels of their organizations and not just saying, we'll just hand this one to the data guy or the data team? They're getting there. Mm. My answer is always going to be, it's a work in progress. It will always be a work in progress. That's just human nature. The nice thing is we're starting to see a passage from complete ignorance to just giving lip service to now actually seeing some, some plans and actions put into play. So it's no longer just, oh, we need ethics or, oh, we need AI. From, from both standpoints, you have business leaders that will come in and say, we need AI because that's the trendy thing to do. They'll also come in and say, we need ethics because that's the trendy thing to do. And we're seeing that business leaders are slowly catching on to sometimes you don't need AI, but you do always need ethics to put that into action. And just being able to balance that out, it's getting there. We're seeing hope for the future. And when you talk about bravery in the face of data AI, technology, et cetera, Olivia, what do you mean by that? A whole load of different things. I've actually been working on unpacking that concept. But specifically in terms of data, one of the points that I can make here is our technology and our data are a reflection of our society. So when we see something in our systems that we don't like, that's not the system. That's actually our society. That's, that's our human nature. Either some type of algorithmic bias already ingrained in the system, that is 
coming from our society, from our day-to-day actions. And so bravery comes into play here where we look at that and we, instead of saying, okay, how can we put a Band-Aid over this with another piece of tech, instead of trying to solve that algorithmic bias with more tech, actually look at society and go, okay, where's the root of this problem coming from? And that takes bravery because that's, that's, that's scary. It's really hard to go, okay, something is off with me and my society or me and my community. There's something off there. It's a longer term game. It's not a simple solution. But in taking that, that brave step forward of saying, okay, I'm actually going to face the root of this and I'm not just going to put a bandaid over it and pretend it's all, all okay. We actually do start to solve some of these deeper set problems that we're seeing pop up over and over and over again. Okay. Is collaboration between the different kinds of people you've talked about, is that absolutely vital in getting to the root of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, it'd be impossible not to collaborate. You have to have that holistic point of view. I miss problems that a programmer that will, will pick up and a programmer and a philosopher will miss problems that a politician will, will pick up on. It's having that full point of view. AI is not a programmer's problem. It's a whole society's. It's, it's, it takes a village, as we used to say. And Firas, Olivia talked a bit there about kind of human biases. It's, it's very easy to put human biases into data sets, into AI, et cetera, but it's a lot harder to get them out, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, on the back of the Black Lives Matters uh, movement, there's been a massive retaliation on, on surveillance tech and all, all, of these, uh, all of these kinds of things, which is, which is great. Because it just shows that, you know, we're not, we're not ready to, to face the problem head on yet with all of this technology being available. So it's really important to, to have thorough reviews of these technologies and the data sets that sit behind them before we start creating massively unequal societies. And I'm not trying to, to scaremonger or anything, but um, it's very heartwarming, I think, when also the public are getting very... Uh, common with things like algorithms going wrong. I mean, the exam blunder in England, you know, was was one good example as well this year. Is we're getting we're getting this stuff in the media all the time, and people are starting to wonder, okay, so what, what's going wrong here, you know? And and that's that's very important. And what about the point that was raised at the Scotsman conference in November by Sandy Pentland? This whole idea of we need to see data as a primary means of production. It's a bit like labour or capital. And it's like trade unions were formed to to tackle labor inequalities. We've had credit unions and other forms of savings programs to tackle financial inequality. Do you think we need that with data, Olivia? Do we need some kind of reset of that relationship between people and data and artificial intelligence? I think so. I think what happened was this whole fourth revolution took off and we weren't entirely sure where it was going. And now we're looking back with hindsight going, hold on, maybe we need to approach data a bit differently. One of the conversations that goes on quite frequently in the AI ethics community is this question of data sovereignty. And there's an idea of having your own digital agent where you as the user get to decide specifically what your data is used for. And instead of you having to consent every time you enter a website, you actually control literally a a digital version of yourself, so to speak. And you can log on and say, okay, I do not want my data being used for targeted ads like we were talking before, but I'm happy with my health data being shared with hospitals. And so you're back in complete control of the data. 
And instead of companies just kind of getting to farm that, they actually have to go and look at this, this central digital agent and go, okay, um, can't use this one, can use this one. So I think that is actually a very, it's a, it's a hefty proposal, but I think it's a step in the right direction. It, it, it then puts the control back into the origin of where all of this data is coming from, back into the people's hands. It's, it gives us our agency back. Um, which I think is something very, very important. And how might that work? How might a kind of, you know, how where would you have a digital sovereign profile, if you like? How would you see it operating potentially? It's still a very new discussion. So I can only speak in hypotheticals, but there's ideas of making it kind of like your your government profile that, you're, that the government keeps, much as like coming from the American's perspective, our social security numbers, where everything's connected there. Of course, that opens up a lot of discussions in terms of security risks, but it's something headed in the right direction. I think it's most likely going to have to rest in the public sphere. I don't think this could ever be private because as soon as this becomes something that you can that you have to pay for on your own, all of a sudden that's bringing inequality back into effect. That's putting privacy as a privilege where it really this should be in a way a fundamental digital right. We've talked about a whole range of issues here where we are talking about putting people back at the centre of data and AI and technology in general. I'm just going to ask you both a final question and you, Olivia, first, you know, are you optimistic? Yes, I'm very optimistic. I know sometimes we can all sound doom and gloom coming from the ethics community, but I'm optimistic. People are waking up and it's beyond just, hey, this is something that we should probably be doing and more of hey, this is really something we need to be doing and how do we do it? Speaking from my own company perspective, ethical intelligence, we're seeing a massive turn from, oh, this is kind of interesting. Let me explore this resource to people reaching out to us going, how do I solve this problem? Or can you give me any direction? I, I want to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Do you agree, Fira, as we're moving away from the what's going on to how do we get involved and how do we tackle this now? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the tide has definitely shifted and turned. So so this is going to be a very very exciting space where hopefully we'll be able to make massive difference in the years to come. I want to do one plug-in actually, and for those who haven't who haven't uh, seen the paper, but uh, the Value of Data campaign has just released a democratization of talent paper, which talks about how do we create more inclusive workspaces. So I would I'd really I'd really kind of recommend listeners uh, check that out on the DMA website. Okay. Thank you very much, Firaz. So a generally optimistic note from both of our speakers today. And I'd just like to say thanks very much to Olivia Gamblin and to Firaz Kanisa. Thanks very much both. Thanks for having us, David. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Data Capital, the Scotsman's six-part series on how data and artificial intelligence are shaping the way we live, work and play. If you did, please don't forget to rate it and subscribe to the series. Data Capital is brought to you by The Scotsman and available wherever you get your podcasts. And it's presented by me, David Lee, and produced by Morvan McIntyre.